Hello and welcome to Tech and Whatever, a new weekly show exploring the world of gaming, consumer technology and pretty much everything related to them. Tune into our podcast on Spotify, including other platforms, and check out our videos on YouTube. My name is Ryan. And this is the Focus speaking. And welcome to the second episode of Tech and Whatever. Join us as we explore what's been going on on the technology and gaming space. Let's start with the biggest news since our last show. As NVIDIA is on a fucking crusade to absolutely crush the competition and dominate the consumer PC graphic card space. Because at midnight on 2nd September, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang dropped the new 30 series RTX graphics card and they blow my fucking mind. The theme for the 30 series seems to be factor 2. Because NVIDIA seems to have decided screw the incremental improvement model that is used basically everywhere and let's go for exponential improvement. Because pretty much everything about them is a step up from the current 20 series cards by a factor of 2. And it's not like they're deliberately using lower benchmarks to make it easier to go factor 2. The flagship RTX 3080 is touted to be near as makes no difference twice the performance of the 2080, and with that also a heck of a lot more powerful than the 2080 Ti. Yep. You aren't hearing things. The new 3080 absolutely murders the ultimate maxed out bolster wall big daddy current generation consumer level graphics card. Now let's just look at the CUDA cores. The 2080 Ti has 4,352. The vanilla 3080, assuming even more powerful versions are coming in time, has 8,704. Exactly double the amount. Memory speed, GDDR6X, transmits data at double the rate of GDDR6. And we haven't even gotten the most mind-blowing factor to yet, which is that the 2080Ti is double the price of the new 3080. Or in other words, the 3080 is about half the price of the 2080 Ti. And that's only looking at the cheaper versions of the card available in the market. Last I checked, the cheapest 2080 Ti you can find in Singapore is about 1,800 Singapore dollars, which is about 1,300 US dollars. The 3080 launches at 700 US dollars, which is about 950 dollars over here. In other words, about the same price as a vanilla 2080, or close to half that of the 80Ti. This is not the only graphics card that was launched too. We also got to see the 3090, which although costs 1,500, should be considered a bargain because it meant to replace the professional level RTX Titan, which costs another thousand US dollars more, while being a heck of a lot more powerful. Powerful enough to run RTX at DL. SS at 8K, 60p resolution, yes, 8K. We don't even have many monitors that can run 8K yet, but they thought they'd give it to you anyway. What is even more insane and could probably be most interesting to most of us consumers is the lowest end card that was announced. Because even supposedly lowest end RTX 3070 
is in some use cases two times the performance of the existing RTX 2070, which makes it faster than the 2080 Ti. Yet it will be sold at 500 USD, aka much less than half the price of 2080 Ti. A recent benchmark by various tech content creators proved that Nvidia wasn't shitting about the performance margin between 20 series and 30 series cards. At least for 3080, which has now been benchmarked by many tech content creators and it blows any 20, card, 20 series cards to the middle of next month. Holy shit. Now, more performance than a 2080 Ti for a small fraction of the price of a 2080 Ti. Excited yet? Probably not quite for those who recently bought a 2070 or higher graphics card. But anyway, I know I'm very excited about this. Though not entirely for these brands spanking new cards. Because to be honest, I don't need this level of power. What I want to see is for the prices of the 20 series cards to drop because of the pricing strategy for the 30 series cards. How far will their prices fall as a result, given that a US $500 card is now more powerful than a $1300 one? Will the 2080 Ti suddenly become available for even less? Because there's no way people are going to pay more for less performance, right? Also, knowing that Nvidia are launching even more cards later this year, how will they affect the prices of the current generation? Because even for these new cards, there's already not much price bracketing space for them to slot these new cards into. We don't know where in the performance bracket those new cards will slot in either, but I'm willing to guess it will either be super versions of the newly launched 30 series cards, a cheaper, less powerful 30s cards, maybe something like 3060, or a new set of GTX cards. But given the way Nvidia's been pricing their new cards, there's a good chance they may kill the GTX line entirely going forward. Meaning every new card, even the cheapest, least powerful ones, will run some form of real-time ray tracing, as it may no longer make financial sense to manufacture cards without it. And then I can brag about owning the last ever GTX card from Nvidia. But this all comes back to the question. What's going to happen to the existing stock of 16 and 20 series cards? We're already starting to see signs of a dumping frenzy in the second-hand market, but what happens to the stock still sitting on retailer store shelves? Will they have to sell those cards at a loss to get rid of them? How much of a hit will they have to take to get them off their shelves? Will the 30 series buying frenzy be big enough to offset the hit they may have to take? Now, what would you do? based on what you have. If you're using a GTX card, would you sell it and lowball the shit out of those selling off their 20 series cards in the second hand market? Or upgrade straight to a 3070? If you're using a 20 series card, do you sell yours and go for a 30 series version of the card you have or higher? Or if you just bought a 2080 and above? Ha! 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 But I guess I'm not dumping it immediately to get a 3080A. Ryan? Shut up. <laughs> now, personally, being a 1660 super user, the temptation to sell an upgrade to RTX is honestly huge, but which one? This could depend on the second hand market and whether I can get good deals in both selling my card and buying another one. 
At least over here in Singapore, my 1660 Super still seems to be holding up pretty well in terms of value. While something like a 2070 Super is still about double the price of a 1660 Super. I'm still pretty happy with what I have, so I'm going to wait and see what happens after the 30 series hits the market. We're also waiting for AMD to raise their big Navi cards. I'm pretty sure Team Red was sweating profusely as they watched Jensen Huang introduce the 30 series cards. Because Team Green just taken performance per dollar aka value for money to an entirely new level, which I don't think anyone will be able to match in the at least the short term. And as mentioned earlier, Nvidia also launching another set of graphics cards in maybe November. By the looks of things, we may not actually be getting a fight in the top end graphics card space because there's almost no way to. And AMD has never truly competed with the best of what Nvidia has to offer anyway. In terms of sheer performance, it's hard to top even the 3080 when it's such a leap above the 2080 Ti that Radeon has never been able to truly compete with. Their flagship Radeon 5700 XT was more a rival to RTX 2070 than the 2080 Ti. And there's a good chance Big Navi, even though it may also support real-time ray tracing, may be going down the same path, given what we've seen so far. It's going to be hugely difficult to beat the Nvidia in the price-to-performance stakes as well, given how far Team Green has pushed it with 3070. While we can expect Big Navi to also be more powerful than the 2080 Ti, exactly how far can they take it in terms of performance? And will they be able to keep the prices competitive while they are at it? Three ways I see what Big Navi could be. A true rival to the 3080 in terms of performance and or price. Something that slots between 3070 and 3080 in power and pricing. Or an equivalent to 3070 in performance but cheaper. These could well be the only ways Big Navi may have a fighting chance against Ampere. Well, we'll soon find out what AMD will do for Ryu and how what they do is affected by what NVIDIA has done. In the meantime, we wait for the 30 series to hit the market for Ryu, and for our colleagues in the tech press to get their hands on them and tell them how good these cards really are. Unless NVIDIA, AMD, and their AIB partners are willing to give two tech content creation newbies a chance to experience what they have to offer. Please, I need and then we also see news that Intel is going to start making gaming graphics cards. Woo! Chief Architect Raja Koduri announced a new variant for the XC microarchitecture, which has been optimized for gaming. Codenamed XEHPG, is expected to be supporting GDDR6 and real-time ray tracing. This is based on the XEHP microarchitecture, which Intel touts as the first multi-tile, scalable, high-performance architecture which is meant for data centers. It is supposed to work like a multi-core GPU, scalable up to four tiles. Whether this capability will be carried over to the gaming chip, and if so, how it will be carried over and how much performance this can generate, we cannot know for sure until they are on the market and have seen actual use. What we do know, is that we can expect to see it sometime next year, 
and that Intel will be engaging an external foundry to make the XCHPG chips. No idea which foundry they will be working with, but we do know where those of their competitors will come from. TSMC. AMD has already pretty much stepped up all of their 7nm manufacturing capacity, including for their upcoming big Navi graphics cards, to the point that Nvidia has turned to Samsung to make their 30 series graphics cards. TSMC is also making a graphics card for the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X, which will both be running watered down versions of Big Navi. So while there are rumors suggesting Intel graphics cards will also be manufactured by TSMC, this might not actually be possible simply because TSMC doesn't have any more capacity to. If you've been paying attention to what we've just said about these Intel cards, you may notice apart from multi-scalability, nothing we mention about them is actually new technology. In fact, GDDR6 and real-time ray tracing have been around since NVIDIA's 20 series, and they've only been carried over to the 3070 and maybe lower graphics cards, meaning Intel will still basically only be competing with 2080 Ti by the time their cards hit the market next year, even though 2080 Ti has already been rendered pretty much obsolete by the 30 series, which by the time Intel launches their graphics cards, will have already been around for a year. So I guess we can expect them to take up the lower end of the consumer graphics card space, which doesn't say much about the aspirations and capabilities of Intel, to be honest, when the best they can do is to prop up the GPU Premier League table. What we're looking at here is Intel playing catch-up to AMD, who are themselves playing catch-up to the NVIDIA and GPU market. And they're not helping themselves by launching their far, far later than the competition too. If observers are calling Big Navi dead on arrival with an NVIDIA having gone all out to nail them six feet under, the Intel's graphics cards are basically dead before they're even developed. I could use more accurate term, but it might be depressing for some. You know. How excited are you about 30 series? Have you tried to buy the 3080 on launch day only to find them sold out before they really become available? What do you think are the next cards NVIDIA will be launching? What are your predictions for Big Navi? Is there any way Intel can dig themselves out of the avalanche of bad press they find themselves stuck in? Let us know your thoughts. And onward to something we don't have to wait for, as AMD just launched a new A520 motherboard chipset. They will come future-proof supporting the current Gen Zen 2 and beyond, but not backwards compatible at all. So the 2000 series and older will not work on these boards, which is understandable. To be honest, as they are essentially meant to be the gateway to Zen 2 and the upcoming Zen 3 CPUs and are priced for their purpose. As the code name suggests, the A520 slots in below the B550 chipset motherboards in terms of specs and price. The only full-size ATX motherboards currently in the market is Gigabyte. A520, Aurora's Elite, they also have the most models available with 7. MSI and Asus only makes micro ATX cards, MSI offering 4 models, Asus ordering 3. 
ASRock makes one micro ATX and one mini ITX, while Biostar only have one micro ATX board on sale. What have AMD left out of the A520 boards to create this gateway to the upcoming Zen 3? PCIe Gen 4. Yup, it runs purely PCIe Gen 3. All 26 usable lanes of them. Otherwise, there aren't actually many compromises to the A520. It can still support up to 5 USB 3.2 Gen 2 ports, 2 native USB 3.1 ports, 6 2.0 ports, and up to 4 times SATA ports. And affordable, they are indeed. As they are priced between 120 bucks to 190 over here, they are equivalent B550 boards are close to double the price. The question I have now is, if you're looking to build a new AMD system to use the shiny new 30 series graphics cards with, will the A520 chips be what you're looking for? If you're going for a cheapish system, say Ryzen 3, 3 3300X, with the RTX Lay 70, the price difference between A520 and B550 may be a factor. And although the 30 series supports and may benefit from PCIe Gen 4, especially since they use GPU memory modules to massively reduce game load times, the performance hit you take from running them on PCIe Gen 3 platforms should be negligible, at least according to NVIDIA. But since you're going 30 series already, would you be tempted to give it a little bit more love to milk more performance out of your money? Let us know! And let us end our talk on tech news where we started because this just in. NVIDIA have reached an agreement with SoftBank to buy over ARM for 40 billion US dollars, subject to regulatory approval. And they've gone full superhero here too. In our last show, we talked about the concerns by observers about this takeover, such as ARM's headquarters being moved out of Cambridge, them losing their neutrality towards their licensees, and ARM's chips becoming more difficult for licensees of their tech to optimize them to their needs. Well, NVIDIA has promised in their statement announcing their takeover that at least two of those things won't be happening. ARM's headquarters will remain in Cambridge, and NVIDIA will be investing more to develop the site into a world-class AI facility, working on sectors such as healthcare, self-driving cars, and life sciences. They will even be building an AI supercomputer in Cambridge using ARM CPUs. ARM will also retain the open licensing model for that technology, and their neutrality towards all the licensees will be retained. All of ARM's intellectual property will also continue to be registered in the UK. Based on the wording of their statement, apart from injecting cash into ARM, NVIDIA is also offering up their technologies to be licensed alongside those developed by ARM. So we could see this takeover more as a collaborative move than a hostile one, both companies leveraging on the capabilities of each other to explore sectors and markets that have yet to dive into on their own, while working together in sectors they are already working on. 
NVIDIA's aim with this takeover seems to be to leverage on ARM's processor ecosystem to further develop their artificial intelligence capabilities, which they are already leading the world in. So yeah, NVIDIA's on quite a tear these days. And they're taking the high road while they're at it, offering the consumers true tangible improvements in performance without increasing prices, and even apparently being nice in their corporate takeover actions. Can they keep this level of good press going? I'm sure most of us consumers will hope they keep this going for as long as they are the biggest name in consumer graphics cards, as this is exactly what will keep them on the top step of the podium. Moving on to what could be huge news that could be relevant to basically everyone, or at least everyone who uses a smartphone. Specifically, an Android phone, because Qualcomm Snapdragon chips have been found to contain more than 400 vulnerabilities that could put the phones using these chips at risk of data theft. As reported by Wired, the Digital Signals Processors DSP in Snapdragon chips, which can handle tasks such as Augmented Reality AR, Photo and Video and Charging, can be targeted and surprisingly quite easily to quite horrible effect. Users can be attacked simply by downloading a video or other content possessed by the DSP, or downloading malicious apps which may not require permissions to download and install. And from there, your phone can be monitored in real time. There's no real way to know whether the content or app you're downloading are booby-trapped to infiltrate your device even if you're downloading them from Google Play Store. What can be monitored? Your location and nearby audio in real time. Your photos, your videos can be accessed by attackers. Your phones may also be bricked. And there might be nothing you can do about this, as the security breaches may not be detected by the phone's operating systems. While Qualcomm has released a fix for this set of security flaws, codenamed Achilles, we do not know whether they have been passed down to Google or Android devices using Snapdragon chips yet. Should you be worried? Well, there could be about a billion devices using Snapdragon chips floating around making up to 40% of all the phones in the world. So there's a good chance you may be using one, unless you're using an iPhone. How worried should you be? In most cases, we may not know if our data is being stolen and may not feel its impact you know, even if our data is going where we don't intend it to be. At least until it does, when our accounts get hacked, and so far there haven't been reports of data breaches like because of uh, Achilles. So there's no need to dump your Android phone and deflect to the Church of Apple just yet. Which brings us to news that has only happened not very long ago that Apple has launched new shit for its followers to minus EQ outside the shiny new round floating Apple Store 4. At 1am on 16 September, aka 10am 15 September Pacific Time, at Apple's Time Flies event, the latest generation of Apple Watches and iPads were announced. Yet, as many of us had guessed, no iPhone just yet. What we did get from the event is the Apple Watch 6, which has a new processor, 
and now monitors blood oxygen saturation and altitude. We also get the Apple Watch SE, which is basically an Apple Watch 5 with an altimeter. And then we get to the iPads. There's a new entry-level iPad that runs an A12 Bionic processor and an iPad Air that uses an A14 Bionic chip. Has a USB Type-C port and supports Apple Pencil. The iPad retails from $499 Singapore dollars onwards, the Air from $879 onwards. Personally, I basically don't use anything Apple, though I may be looking for a tablet of some sort to allow me to continue working when I don't have access to my PC. The box standard iPad does interest me a bit, but $500 is quite a bit for that level of spec. A Samsung Tablet A10.1 is almost the same spec for $100 less. And I get expendable storage. So let's speak to a former iPad Pro user about these new iPads. Ryan, yes. would you buy them? Yeah, definitely. I've been using the iPad for like three years for work. Uh, I previously do designs, so it helped me tremendously. I got the 12.9 inch one, second gen, I think. The, the keyboard sucks. Let's hands down, let's put it that way. The app, the Apple keyboard they sell us is shit. I don't and know about the new one. The MacBooks. Uh, the MacBooks now is good, but the previous one is shit. The the ones I use was shit, but the new ones I heard it was really good. I would buy another iPad if it's not so expensive. I'd probably go for the iPad Air to be honest. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I would buy them. It's super fast. It's crisps, it's super useful. If you're not using like special software that you need a PC for, you can definitely replace your you know, normal laptop and work on the go, reply emails and stuff. Interesting. Anyway, let's get on to gaming. And let's start with where we started last time with Call of Duty Warzone. Ugh. Because... Activision ain't fucking around no more. By threatening to sue hackmaker CXCheats.net, Activision have managed to force them to stop selling and supporting all of the Warzone hacks they have made and cease development of new ones. While this doesn't fully eradicate cheating from this game, this is big and good news for cheaters and especially for legit players. Well, cheaters are obviously pissed off at the cheats they spent a decent dollar for no longer works, so they can't pretend to be gods in the game anymore. But legit players who play purely for the enjoyment of the game are understandably happy that the game developers are taking real, effective action to improve the game experience for them, who remain the vast majority of consumers of the game. I've played a bit of it since the last episode, and I don't think I've met a hacker, but I haven't been playing enough of it to develop a clear picture of the gaming experience. The better person to talk about it would be Ryan. Yes, it's me again. As I know you've been playing Warzone since Activision made their move. 
Has our gaming experience changed since then? No. Definitely not. Still shit. We 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 heard the news, me and my gaming friends, we we heard the news like yesterday or two days before. We heard that uh Activision actually published a, a notice or you know, a news saying that they have banned more than twenty thousand cheaters so far. You know what happened next? Exactly after this topic, after the discussion, I got a block list from starting the game. What the hell, man? So apparently it's not that effective. But the, the I mean, it's still a good game. The cheaters are ruining the game. And why is my block list still in my block list? They should be banned, man. I don't block people for fun. I block hackers. You know? You mean those you have blocked are still active? No shit, they are. <laughs> oh, fuck. In three different games, I got the same block list, man. What the hell? That on, still kind of sucks. Man. Looks like Activision has more suing to do. You know, more suing. Or just install a third party fuck it. just install a third party anti-cheat it's not that hard right uh, <laughs> Activision hello you need to do something yes Your you do some things haven't worked so far yep. you need to do something more and something else yeah yeah uh, not to not to say talk and talk shit about uh, our fellow China players, but uh, can can it get another server, please? You know, it would cut down like half. I mean, there's I met I don't know about Singaporeans, right? I met Filipino hackers, I met Thai hackers, I met China hackers, multiple, 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 multiple times. I mean, you can cut down the cheating by half, just give them an observer, man. Thank you. And onward to a game we both play. Not together yet, just yet, but Valorant. But it has taken the gaming world by storm in the few months since its launch. At first glance, it's not much different from CSGO. It's a 5v5 esports style first-person tactical shooter. The objective is to plant or defuse a destructive device of some sort. You earn money based on your team's results and you use the money you get to buy weapons to fight better with the enemies. Where it starts to become different when it incorporates elements of other esports games in its gameplay, like the games such as Overwatch. Every character has a unique set of skills which encourage different styles of play in order to fully utilize the abilities of each character. This means that on top of learning the maps, the characteristics of each weapon and team fight tactics, you also need to learn the skills specific to each character and how each character works together with the others. It's basically Overwatch and CS rolled into one mind-bending game of combat movement, skill, tactics, and teamwork. And the one I still play more like CS, using almost nothing but guns as I haven't had much time to play the game and really learn the characters and their skills. 
but I know one person who has spent quite a bit of time playing Valorant. Ryan! Yes? What have your experiences with the game been like? Okay, uh, at first I was really not into it. Like, I got friends telling me to play, Ryan, play, you'll love it. And I was like, nah, fuck this shit, you know, just copying CS, copying Overwatch. What's so fun about that, you know? But I ended up giving it a try and instantly got hooked on it. Because I basically love really, really competitive games like CS. I played CS since I was fucking 12 years old. Played it for 20 years now. And I'm still playing it. But Valorant brings a really good fresh air in, into this genre. Which you can, you know, like when you use Jet, you can dash around, you can flash, you can, you know, use all sorts of styles. Basically, it's the utility that you get in CS, but, you know, in a flashier style. And different agents get to do different things, different roles. And then it, it gives you a whole new approach to how you're going to go into a combat situation. Which is very, very refreshing, to be honest, after playing CS for like 20 years. So, right now, I'm still grinding the game. It's, it's really nice. The pro scenes has been... Uh, pretty fun to look toward but to watch at uh, to look at it in in uh, a very different kind of uh, perspective I would say but you know riot games being riot games they they did a pretty good job you know holding off the hackers and and you know the cheats for now yeah we already see what four guys coming out with cheat islands for all the hackers to gather and cheat each other. But, well... Yeah, Fall Guys. It's so stupid. Like, why would you hack in Fall Guys? I don't understand. I met a, a hacker, like, a few weeks back, uh, when, when my missus is playing. And somebody just dashed towards the finish line. Nothing hits him. So he just dashed all the way. To the finish line. I was like, what the hell? What is this guy? I was like, is that a hacker in the game? I was like, why would you hack in Fall Guys? It's not even competitive. I mean, it's competitive in a way, right? But it's for kids, man. Why would you hack in a kid's game? That's so stupid. Yeah, what's the point of hacking in a game that prioritizes nothing but movement? Yeah. And it's such a fucking cute game for kids to play. Why the fuck we wanna cheat in something like that? <laughs> it's so it's so dumb. By the way, back to Valorant. Uh, something something that came up to me uh, the other day was when I was, you know, I was going through some gameplays and uh, from pros and all that. The what I feel from what they say is it's basically the same that the game's aim is pretty inconsistent for now like I think then Riot needs to balance the aim uh, balance the recoil a bit because it, it feels weird it feels really inconsistent so yeah that's that's my take on on Valorant so far and I heard they've been trying to balance the scores for different characters you know some are being Disadvantage unfairly. Sorry, what 
What, what do you mean by disadvantage of them? The you mean the, the, the skills? Yeah, some of the more support style play characters that never scored well seems to have been got seems to have gotten some kind of buff or different way to calculate their scores. Uh I don't know, to be honest. I don't know about the ranking system, it's been fair to me. Because, you know, if for, for I mean even if you're playing support you have to be killing people to support your team, right? Like, you can heal. Like, if you're playing Sage, you can wall, you can heal, you can slow down their push. But they got the push eventually, right? And you have to kill them. You cannot be just doing, you know, a support without getting any kills. Then you're not doing any support, right? You're just, you're just holding them back. And then when they push in, they're just delaying time. And what, get, get the better teammates to carry you? I don't know. So, so I think that um, being a support is important, very important uh, on, on, on the team, but you do still have to kill. Yeah, that's, that's my take on it. And my own little experiences with Valorant, apart from it reminding me of games like CS and Overwatch, there are elements of it that remind me of Dota. Is that... Sort of an accurate description. Dota, not so much. Minus maybe... the items and, and creeps. No, no. I, I don't think Dota... Maybe League of Legends a bit. You know, the skills. The skill sets of the, the, the champions or, or agents, would you call them? Maybe. Because, you know, Riot Games, they, they make League of Legends. You know? ah. There might be a bit of, you know, elements in it, but I, I, I don't... I don't feel it. Personally, I play League of Legends uh, uh, previously. But I, I don't feel, you know, the, the cross-mix in, in, the, in the fold, I would say. I guess I'm getting all these impressions because I only recently started touching Dota also. Mm. So, some of the elements that come of, that I look at, they kind of remind me of in a very broad sense, the gameplay of Dota. In a sense that you have five characters with each with different skills and roles and you can choose either team fight across different sections of the map or split up. And they all have different roles and different ways to work together to fight the enemies. I think it's more more I mean, comparing a MOBA to, to FPS is it's a bit weird, but yeah, I, I, I kind of get where you're coming from. Yeah, but I, I mostly uh, I would say it's more of a crossover from CS more than, you know, uh, other MOBA. Yeah, it's titles. more CS than Dota, definitely. Yeah, I, I think Valorant is really built for really competitive gameplay, uh, for esports especially. I think it will go really big uh, in, in the eSports scenes once, you know, everything settles down. Uh, the pro teams got, you know, all the players they need, all the pieces they need, and then competition starts, you know, reviving Riot Games, you know, sponsoring co competitions and all that big prize pools. I think Valorant is going to be very, very big and it's going to stay big for, for a while. 
Yeah, and even given my own later impressions from only playing this once or twice, the first time I loaded the game, it, while it still does remind me of CS, it's like CS but a lot nicer. Yeah, I think a lot of pe- players say CS is a date game, but the, they don't understand that the, the pro scene in CS is still really, really big. It's so big, it's insane. The price pool is so big as well. And I've been following CS for really, really long. I mean, yes, the matchmaking is so shit. Cheaters everywhere. 60 tick servers, bullshit, you know. But, you know, if you if you really want to play competitively, go ESEA or, or use Face It, you know. It's less cheat. There's still cheaters, definitely, but it's less. And 128 tick servers, so, you know. It, it's it's more or less no updates for CS with you know so long already yeah I don't think I don't think there's a need for CS to update anymore actually yeah I think Valve... apart from the graphics which Valorant has already done that so CS can continue to stay to retain its emphasis purely on gameplay which it has been for decades now yeah i i think the valve cs team is is doing something else doing something big because there's no there's not much update you can't really up you can't really revamp cs anymore no you can't revamp cs i mean there's no updates like there's no content there's no ways to block more cheaters you know there's no updates there's nothing else you can do with it anymore yeah yeah the thing is that and then and they have been silent for quite a while. So I'm thinking they're doing something big or, or you know, maybe building another CS, a new CS Go or something, a CS Go 2, maybe. Yeah. I do hope they want, they are going to build new stuff because the games we know of them now are only games that have been around for donkey's years. Dota, yeah. CS, Left 4 Dead. Those are all the games we know Valve for. Yeah. But they haven't been doing much. Since those games come have come out, except maybe an L forty two update that recently just came, which we will talk about later on. Yep. But I played that already. The the left for that one. I kind of know. <laughs> yeah, I I played that already. It, it's okay. I mean, it's a. I mean, I would say it's a really dead game. It's but still L forty. Yeah, it's still L forty. It's still fun. You know when you when you go there. We'll talk about this in, in probably the next episode. And with that, thank you all for tuning in to the second episode of Tech and Whatever. If you liked our content, do consider subscribing to us on Spotify and our other platforms. And if you have any opinions on the topics we've discussed, what you'd like us to cover in future episodes, and how we can do better, do feel free to leave a comment or speak to us directly and we will do our best to respond to you as much as we can. Once again, thank you all for tuning in to Tech and Whatever. We'll see and hear you in the next one. Bye. Bye.